Welcome to Restart Radio. I'm Dave Pickering and I make podcasts. I spend most of my life online, but I've got no idea how to fix any of the devices that help me to spend my time there. But I've been invited to a party. It's called a restart party and this party might just help me to understand the technology that I use every day and all the time. A Restart Party is a pop-up community repair event where skilled volunteers help people diagnose and repair their broken electronics. They are organised by the Restart Project, who are a London-based charity and social enterprise whose mission is to spark reflection and change in our relationship with gadgets. So let's go now to a Restart Party. Okay, I'm Ray and I'm here because my amp doesn't work. Is it, is it still not working? It's way? working now. Andrew fixed it and it's, it's perfect now. Wow. It wasn't turning on when I was at home. I bought it here and he, yeah, I spent a few minutes with it, looked over it and tested it, put some weird meters on it to see whether there's a current going through it and took it from there. And I'm, I'm relieved because I was going to actually take it to get recycled the other day. So, you know, I'm glad I didn't take it down and I actually heard about this today. And I came down and, you know, I'm really happy. I'm going to go home and hook up the amp and listen to some music. Do you know what materials might be inside this amp? No, I don't. I'm guessing there's some sort of aluminium, there's circuit boards, there's solder, and maybe something else which is probably a bit toxic. So that's why I wouldn't throw it in the bin. I take it to be recycled. So I thought it's best to kind of restart and keep it working rather than throw it away and damage the environment you know I, I read the labels and it's i just care about the environment i recycle things from plastic so technology shouldn't go in landfill you know if we can recycle it or use bits of it to make other things why not what kind of toxic materials do you think might be inside that amp? i'm not sure maybe uh mercury uh, maybe lead uh, i'm not sure really In today's episode, we're going to be thinking about what materials our electronic devices are made of, what things inside them are valuable, and what things inside them are toxic or dangerous. I'm Jennifer Gabriz, and I'm a reader in the Department of Sociology at Goldsmiths University of London, and I'm currently principal investigator on a European Research Council project called Citizen Sense, which investigates the use of low-cost environmental monitoring technologies, and we're primarily looking at the use of using electronics to monitor air. However, previous to this work, I've looked at the topic of electronic waste, specifically to look at the materiality of digital devices. Jennifer wrote a book called Digital Rubbish, A Natural History of Electronics. Natural history is a core concept that I use, drawing from the German philosopher uh, and literary critic Walter Benjamin, And he had this quite interesting notion of natural history, which was a way of looking at commodities, in his case, uh, the arcades of Paris in the 19th century, as fossils. So he was looking at things like combs and umbrellas and briefcases and seeing them as outdated and outmoded objects that were no longer desirable. And he was quite drawn to these objects because he thought they expressed a kind of sense of the materialities, the markets, the economic forces that had run through them, the fact that they were once desirable and no longer were, and that they began to seem to be natural forms, that they were fossils of sorts. And I thought this was quite a provocative concept for thinking about electronics, 
because it also allows us to look at all of our digital devices as something that in one way is making new natures um, and in another way as something that will inevitably be thrown away and decay and become a future fossil. So how might we study these electronics as fossils? And thinking about natural history methods as ways of detecting objects, finding objects, and then trying to understand what led to the formation of that object. So you might find a trilobite, um, and then you're understanding a geological epoch and what happened in that era, and was there a flood, and um, what happened at this particular moment that this um, object became frozen in the way that it did. So it's a way to look at objects and then scale up to looking at the systems in which those objects might have circulated. So that natural history method is really organising the whole of the book, Digital Rubbish. We'll be hearing a lot more from Jennifer in today's episode, but before we scale up too much, let's go back to a restart party and to a very sick device that's fighting for its life. My name's Cam. I've got an Xbox 360 that's got the red ring of death. You and Faraz have been working on this for quite a long time today, yeah, right? Yeah, hours so far, yeah. I came in at, uh, just before one and it's three o'clock now, so we've, we've had to go and buy some new equipment. We bought two heat sinks and we bought some thermal paste, we bought some thermal pads. Yeah, I'm pretty nervous um, because we've, we've had to tear, tear the whole thing apart. We, we cracked the side plate, unfortunately. We've like, stripped the whole thing down, the motherboard's out. I'm a bit nervous about whether we can put it back together again. I mean, what kind of materials do you think is, is inside this Xbox? I mean, I guess we've got a better idea now because we can see more of the inside than normal. There's an actual motherboard in there, which is a lot like a normal computer motherboard. What's interesting is inside PCs, you normally have heat sinks with cooler fans and stuff. This doesn't have any of that at all. It's just got heat sinks on its own. What's inside the motherboard is, I guess, an interesting question. Like, what are the actual materials? No idea. No. Absolutely. I, I can see capacitors. I can see CPUs and GPUs. There's a couple of other chipsets as well. I have no idea what they are. The notion that electronics require geological time spans to decompose was really to suggest that we interact with technologies, digital technologies, uh, in quite sort of fleeting and rapid ways. And we're often upgrading our devices, typically a new mobile phone every year, a new laptop every two to three years. Um, Obviously, this is particular demographics. Not everyone in the world is doing this, but um, they are objects that are increasingly disposable. But counter kind of pose to that temporality of devices is the time they take to break down. And because they're composed of plastics and metals and any number of other components that are inside of electronics, they can take uh, centuries to decompose. So this is a kind of way of pointing out that the materiality of the digital is something that is contradictory in a way and something that we haven't probably quite fully uh, taken stock of in terms of its environmental effects. There have been any number of studies now on the waste society, the increasing amounts of things that we throw away. So there's a question not only about how the objects that we throw away decompose and linger in environments, but also all of the stuff that goes into making our objects. So quite a lot of waste is generated just through manufacturing itself, through mining, through all of the raw materials that go into making objects. So this is kind of question about how long we actually keep hold of our stuff and whether we might think of that as something that has real environmental impacts. It's interesting to work out what kind of materials are inside this this 
this board we're looking at, particularly in terms of like which toxic materials, that's making me nervous now because uh, I'm thinking like which of these materials might even be toxic. Well, I mean, I was appropriately distracted there because they were doing the most difficult part of the operation. It was a bit like watching a heart bypass. So, right. I, I, thankfully, I was talking to you, so I didn't I didn't have to panic so much because I was conveniently distracted. But but we're having a conversation now about kind of materials should be used to hold the heat sink together on the other chips because. The manufacturer didn't uh, um, provide heat sinks for the other smaller chips, so we're, we're applying those. But in terms of uh, toxic materials used, it's hard to guess. I mean, I, I can't imagine the capacitors are made out of anything that's in necessarily environmentally friendly. I wouldn't have thought so anyway, and there's a lot of capacitors on this board. There's more than what I've seen on other boards. Uh, there's probably some toxicity in there. Silicon Valley was, in the kind of post-war era, particularly in the 1960s to the 1980s, a site of microchip manufacturing, and that developed through a number of companies, people from Fairchild going to set up Intel through advanced uh, micro devices, and a number of other microchip manufacturers who were um, producing, uh, manufacturing microchips in situ, and the the manufacture of microchips actually requires quite a number of chemicals in the form of solvents primarily to etch the silicon and to create the pathways in which the circuitry of the microchip is meant to then operate. And so the storage of the solvents from the microchip manufacturer often took place in metal tanks, fiberglass tanks that are stored underground. And eventually those tanks uh, began to leak. And it was discovered primarily through the contamination then of the groundwater and people discovering that their drinking water, people living in Silicon Valley in in the 90s um, at this point, was actually not fit for drinking. And so eventually it, it became apparent that there were a number of Superfund sites, which are the most hazardous sites in the U.S., according to the Environmental Protection Agency's designation um, and have special status uh, for cleanup because they are so hazardous. Uh, Remediation is of a pressing uh, priority. I actually discovered in the course of this research that Silicon Valley had the highest concentration of Superfund sites from microchip manufacture of anywhere in the States at the time that I was doing this work. I haven't kept up to speed with Superfund sites in the U.S., but at the time in the sort of mid to early 2000s, that was quite kind of interesting finding about um, these Superfund sites. They're in the process of remediation, but the process of manufacturing microchips still requires quite a number of chemical inputs. And you could say on another level, cleanup has occurred, not through remediating soil and water, but through outsourcing of microchip manufacturing to places like Taiwan um, and China. And so many of these processes are still used, but they're just undergoing the manufacturing in different places where not necessarily under as much scrutiny environmentally. We're applying thermal pads to the back now, but when the manufacturer actually supplied the Xbox, it has a lot less heat sinks and it has a lot less thermal pads, but because the red ring of death gets caused by heating issues, we're adding a lot more stuff to it now. And so there's a conversation that's taking place about what should be added and where and how much and stuff. Right, so you're adding new materials to it. Yeah. Um, and that, and those, what, so what you're adding is to try and stop it from overheating in the future? Yeah, so we've added more thermal paste to the existing heat sink so that the transfer of heat um, is more efficient. That's to the main chip, so the, to the CPU and the GPU. Then we added two more smaller heat sinks to a couple of other chips that part, form the part of the chipset of the board. They, they were extra. And now we're adding some thermal pads on the back of the board. 
and we're having to cut them down to size and stuff and stick them on but we're a bit unsure about whether everything's going to stay there because we, we think they might just fall off Faraz what is, what is it that you're putting on there now? quite thick 5mm thick uh, thermal pads yeah they, they sort of take some heat away from some of the chips that we have at the back so this is the last step now once these are on uh, we have to put everything back together again and hopefully it'll switch on and work but we have no idea if it will or, or it won't it's about £30 of material so <laughs> let's see how it goes Plastics and electronics were basically expanding at the same time. So this is a post-war set of materials and manufacturing developments and that there are interesting parallels and then convergences between plastics and electronics. The rise of the throwaway society, which is very much kind of tied to plastics, was also then interwoven through the increasing plasticization of electronics, which became more and more lightweight through the use of plastics. And so if you look at the material composition of what's in computers, it's not just the kind of minerals and and metals that we think of allowing the circuitry to work, but they are primarily different plastic composites that are um, also used in a lot of disposable objects. So there are interesting ways in which these technological developments converge and also potentially contribute to sets of cultural practices um, and material cultural practices. What What is that made out of, that thermal stuff? Uh, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> it's, it's got a weird texture to it. It's like, it's like, like jelly, you know, not, not jelly, like it's... Well, how would you describe it? Uh, it doesn't actually say... I mean, it, all, all it says is it's made in China and it's known as a thermal gap filler, but it doesn't actually... Oh, silicon elastometer. Silicon. Yeah. Okay. This stuff's okay. not cheap, though. No. No. The, the board's gone in now. The board is going in, into the, into the case. Yeah. We're going we're to start putting everything else back together again now. Right. I guess there's a lot of screws now. Yeah. That's yeah. So that always seems to be what happens at this point. It's like, it's, it should be the most exciting moment, but actually it's just a lot of screws. Yeah, it's remembering how, where everything goes as well, so... Yeah, See how it goes. Yeah, uh, in fact, it's, it's probably more useful for everyone if I go away while you're working out which screws to use okay. so that you can focus. We'll see you in a bit then. The Silicon Valley uh, fieldwork that I did was just a portion of the research, and I guess it's ch- captured mostly in Chapter 1 of Digital Rubbish. And I went out there in part to look at the Silicon Valley Superfund sites, which are in some ways quite nondescript. They are sites where buildings may have been and they've been bulldozed and they're largely open soil that's being reworked with the um, hope of remediating it in some way. So they just look like construction sites. In some cases, the buildings were still remaining. So you had sites where there are derelict buildings and they're just nondescript 1960s, 1970s and 80s office buildings that are falling apart. And the landscape of Silicon Valley, I mean, it is a suburban landscape by and large. Um, Obviously, it's kind of just uh, beyond the Bay Area, San Francisco, and so on. So it's a sort of sprawling California suburban landscape, quite a lot of freeways and so on. And then basic office buildings, sprawling horizontal office buildings at the time that I was doing my fieldwork. I've since heard that Google and Apple are developing new glamorous headquarters. But at the time I was out there, there weren't very many glamorous 
buildings. They were more nondescript office buildings, I would say. So they weren't sort of things that really stood in marked contrast to the Superfund sites. At the time that I had done my fieldwork, which was around 2004, 2005, I think Silicon Valley was still sort of regrouping from the dot-com crash, and it hadn't quite taken off in the way that it has since in respect to the massive growth of Google and Apple and so on. So I think there probably is further investment in these headquarters and there's more sort of investment generally in different ventures out there. I haven't done field work in Silicon Valley since that time, although of course I've been to the Bay Area and so on, but I haven't gone out to revisit those sites. But what was interesting at the time that I was there is that there was a model remediation for the Netscape headquarters. Of course, Netscape is not um, something that we even think of now as a kind of derelict, obsolete browser, but the Netscape headquarters was a kind of model remediation site on a former Superfund site. So the point with the Superfund sites is to clean them up eventually so that they can become sites of further development. So the moment of truth ish, I guess. Yeah, so we, um, we we kind of assembled half of it back together because we thought, well, if we're going to go to all this effort to put all the screws in, uh, we thought, well, before we put the 16, 20, 30 bajillion screws back in, let's put half of it back together just to the point where we can plug it in. We plugged it in. We're now getting red lights, but it's a different kind of red lights. Normally, if you get the red ring of death, it, the reason why it's called the red ring, I think, is because it kind of circles in a ring. Um, but it's not doing that now. It's just getting four lights together, and I suspect... It's some diddy little error, so we don't know what it is at the moment, but um, it's so not working still. So you're getting a different red light? Yeah. Uh, yes, yeah, a different <laughs> formation, basically, to what we had before. But uh, we're going to Google it now, we're going to figure out what it means. Okay, well, um, g- good luck Googling, and I hope, that you've, I hope that you find some, some solution. Uh, there's not very much time left in this restart party, I think. No, there isn't. So you're kind of working against the clock now as well to heighten yeah, the stakes. It's a shame. Yeah, it's a shame. But uh, let's see what happens. We're going to have a look and uh, see. We're looking at the Microsoft website and see what Microsoft say. So, yeah, we'll keep working at it and we'll keep you updated. So I didn't do ethnographic research of computer scientists and engineers, but I certainly did talk to a number of people along the way, including designers. And for many people, it was a bit of a discovery to find out just how much of an environmental footprint electronics have. However, on the other hand, I did meet other people who were working for um, various electronics companies, um, mobile phone companies, where it was their job to basically uh, perform built-in obsolescence, to um, make new mobile phones that would make the previous mobile phones they had worked on um, obsolete. And so, of course, they were well aware of this uh, this trend and this um, tendency within electronics. And then as I went around giving talks about the work as well, I found that there was quite a lot of interest once people, particularly designers, were learning about um, electronics, of then thinking about how to make modular designs, how to make electronics that might be less toxic. Although this is obviously quite a sort of tall order in terms of what can be achieved, because in some cases designs are proprietary, so um, designs aren't open hardware, uh, so they're not shared and they're not easily adaptable. Um, Apple, for instance, makes objects that are quite sealed and black boxed, so they're not easy to update. You basically have to buy a new device uh, rather than be able to switch out parts. You can't even remove batteries from uh, iPhones and so on. 
I've been asking people at restart parties what toxic materials they think are inside their electronics. In general, no one has really been that sure and no one has wanted to 100% stand by their answers, but a few people did offer some guesses. The only example I can give you is, for example, if you got a tube light and when that breaks, it's the coating on the inside, which is quite poisonous or the gas inside. So, yes, you've got to be very careful when you break it, smash it or, you know, recycle that. And I'm sure it's the same with resistors. Cadmium comes to mind. I'm thinking whatever is in batteries, some of those chemicals. Okay, as far as I know, there are batteries and that's, that's all I know. Some of these heavy metals, I don't know what they are. Right. That's, that's my I've heard of them too. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm very hazy on it. Yes, I think most of them are metals or, or think the things that we think of as metals. Um, semiconductors, they're not strictly metals, but things like silicon and gallium arsenide, they're, they're pretty metallic in, in, in well, physically, if you um, saw a lump of gallium arsenide, you'd probably think it was a bit of metal. Again, it's probably got carbon, solid carbon or liquid carbon of some sort, and others are like tungsten and you know different materials that it's made up of. So I'm sure it'd be very difficult to... Yeah, if you just threw them in a landfill, that could cause problems, yes. I asked Jennifer the same question. So I guess one of the key things is lead, um, which is inside um, some of the circuitry as well as cathode ray tubes for the older monitors. There's also mercury inside LCDs. But a lot of the toxicity also occurs through the way that things are broken apart. As I was mentioning earlier, if this is done in kind of unsafe recycling conditions, it can be create quite a lot of um, air pollution and um, also chemical exposure for workers. The other thing that is toxic, although potentially not as well documented or as well understood, um, although there are studies, increasing numbers of studies on this, is through the brominated flame retardants and the plastics, which can um, off-gas various kinds of chemicals over time that are now increasingly understood to be endocrine disruptors and more. So, um, There's also a kind of question, I think, with um, electronics generally of the kinds of chemical exposure that are occurring across their life cycle that aren't potentially as well understood or well documented and might be a site of further research. A couple of large electronics manufacturers have policies to phase out toxic flame retardants, but not all. So Restart suggests that it's worth looking into that before buying new electronics. I also asked everyone about what materials of value could be found inside their electronics. A few valuable things like gold and silver that get reclaimed. The wires, the, like, there's like the plastic wires, that the metal, copper. I don't know. I'm guessing iron, steel, aluminium. Well, I guess the primary mineral of value that's inside electronics is gold, and it's there in small quantities. But once you take into account the volume of electronics that are thrown away, the small amounts of gold do add up to um, potentially quite valuable stores of, of metals that you can retrieve. So there are forms of recycling that are specifically geared toward uh, retrieving gold, and uh, a lot of that is taking place in locations like China, um, India, and, and Africa, and then not necessarily um, unfolding through the safest uh, recycling practices where uh, acids and so on might be used, various solvents to etch away and get at the gold. Um, 
also burning, which can release dioxins and so on. So um, in order to get at the materials of value, there's often quite unsafe and hazardous extraction processes that take place. So the flashing red lights, four, four flashing red lights, normally mean that the AV cable's not connected. We don't have the AV cable with us to, to test it, but um, hopefully that, that might mean that it's working. Right, yeah. Yeah, I didn't bring the AV cable with me because I thought it's probably just going to be surplus, just more things to carry. But um, it's a different set of red lights to what I had because they were in a circular motion. These, and we've checked the Microsoft um, website, and the Microsoft website saying if you've got four red lights, it's probably just the AV cable, so we're probably okay. Brilliant. So it's a fix, Hopefully. probably. Hopefully, yes. Yeah. yeah. So thank you to Faraz. He's been very patient, and uh, he's been determined to get this thing fixed. So thanks to him. Yeah, no, he, he always is very patient and determined. It's, I'm, I'm always very impressed with his fixing uh, s- skills. So now it's just the rest of the screws to go in and yeah. then you're done. Yeah, hopefully, yes, just in the nick of time. So thanks. So let's leave Cam and Faraz putting the final screws into an Xbox, which will now live at least a little longer before it becomes fossilised, and go back to Jennifer for some final thoughts on the materiality of devices. I mean, the office we're sitting in now, as part of the research um, site for Citizen Sense, is full of electronics, uh, many of which um, are bundled up with these problems and concerns and um, how long will they last, how are they made, how are they manufactured, where will they go when they're discarded of. Um, So there's value in what they can allow us to do. Um, There's value in the materials that are inside them and how you might be able to recycle and reuse them. But at the same time, they have all these issues around toxicity, what they're off-gassing during their uh, uh, use, what sorts of... um, processes were used to manufacture electronics, what sorts of exposure workers might have had to um, experience, because fab labs are sites where quite a lot of chemicals continue to be used, and workers are not necessarily properly protected throughout those processes, Um, and where do electronics end up at end of life, and how are they broken apart? So part of the the um, objective in the book I wrote, Digital Rubbish, was really to draw attention to the different ways in which digital technologies are material. They might seem to be immaterial. They might even seem to be more environmentally friendly than using a piece of paper. But actually, they do have environmental footprints. And it can be complex to draw together a story about what their environmental footprints are But it's an important thing to begin to attend to, particularly as we have increasing numbers of uh, computational devices, not least of which through the Internet of Things, where even toasters and refrigerators are now becoming computational. I'd be quite interested um, to see and hear more people developing experiments with electronics that are not just looking at the ways in which we might develop new uh, racy microcontrollers and and so on in the form of things that are going on with Raspberry Pi and Arduino um, and whatnot, but to actually look at how electronics are made and to see that as um, much a kind of interesting site of experimentation uh, for thinking about how to make more environmentally responsible devices as the proliferation of electronics in all kinds of um, uh, objects. And I would think it's an even more pressing uh, site of concern than putting a chip in everything, because really um, how we make our devices is how we're also making our environments. 
and our future uh, sort of landscapes in which we're living in and the kinds of chemical effects that we have to endure, as well as other entities that have to endure. So that's part of the notion of natural history, is that we're making new natures that are inevitably making um, new natures that we have to live in. When talking to people at the restart parties, a lot of people said to me that the amount of toxicity in devices is tiny and so not immediately dangerous or too much to worry about. But just as lots of small amounts of gold add up to big amounts of gold, so small amounts of toxic add up to large amounts of toxic. And it's been really interesting considering the natural history of technology. I'm often frustrated with the word natural because it seems to me that everything on earth is made from nature. And so Jennifer's approach of considering everything as interrelating to each other rather than separating it into natural and unnatural like we often do seems to me a really useful and insightful way to think about things. The phone I hold in my hand is not separate from the grass I walk on. Both are parts of a global ecosystem, the same ecosystem that I and you and everyone else is also a part of. But I feel like after putting together today's episode, I'm at least a little closer to understanding how these disparate and complicated things all fit together. Restart Radio is both a podcast and a weekly show that goes out at 1.30 on Tuesdays on Resonance 104.4 FM, repeated on Thursdays at 11am. As with all episodes of Restart Radio, we'll include links with background information to all of the issues and stories discussed over at therestartproject.org. The music that you've heard in today's episode was made with lasers and repurposed electronics and is a collaboration between Opto Noise and Cassini Sound. Today's restart party is over, so it's time to pack up the equipment and say goodbye to each other. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, everybody.